Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 Season 4 episode, The Summoning. So this episode has quite a bit going on, as per usual with Season 4. But um, there is a, crit a pretty large criticism I have, uh, but I will divide this into sections like I tend to do. Um, I also thought about doing a spoiler section on the Garibaldi stuff, but I'm, I think I'm going to push it back because there's there's certain episodes later this season that I'd much rather talk about that uh, when it becomes more overt. So let, let's, just speaking of Garibaldi, do the Garibaldi stuff uh, and then continue onwards. So... Garibaldi is found. Um, he's got this uh, weird thing where he was in the ship, and then he was uh, th then he was uh, put into a life pod, sent out, and the ship just uh, you know uh, b blew up. And it, it's all very convenient. Uh, even Zach, uh, Zach is just like this is a bit strange, you know. And uh, it. It's interesting that uh, I, I, there's just a parallel I want to draw because we do know that the Psycore is behind this as per last episode where we saw the guy who gassed him being uh, a, a uh, presumably a Psycop because he was wearing the uniform and the badge. So uh, the when he's kind of in like this weird blanket thing in the life pod and you hear that strange voice go, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, presence detected begin program. We see a flash of lights fly, uh, you know, sort of blink in front of, uh, Garibaldi and, uh, then he wakes up and that those lights are eerily similar to, um, what, we saw as hinting at uh, Talia's real nature back in season one, uh, where we had the hints that the fact that she was being uh, sort of not mind controlled, but having having a separate personality, and that was the trigger for her other personality. Um, so uh, there is sort of evidence of certain things going on with Garibaldi and we see throughout this episode he is a bit more hostile than he tends to be Garibaldi is not a subtle man when it comes to his ragey emotions and when he feels paranoid threatened insecure and he has an opinion and sure as hell he's gonna let you know that he has an opinion but when it comes to, like, at the end of the episode, when Sheridan is having the meeting with the core staff and Lorian, and they're discussing what's going on with the Vorlons, uh, Garibaldi outright just goes, you know, who, you know, why are we supposed to trust him? He shows out of nowhere, saves you, and all we have to go on is the fact that he exists and you vouch for him. And Sheridan's like, well, you, you, you trust me, don't you? And he's like, yeah, sure, but I don't know anything about him. And all you're saying is secrets upon secrets. There's nothing I can do that there's no tangible evidence for me to trust him. Garibaldi just seems a bit not not out of character, but a bit more hostile, uh, more direct. Uh, it's just a hair off course. Uh, this this has all got a purpose, and I'll get into this in a few episodes, I think. Um, but there's just this hint that something is a bit 
too off. It's, it's, it's not perfect. It's just sort of something is not quite right. And we'll get to that in a bit. Now, the Sheridan and Delin stuff. Um, so the thing about that, this is where the criticism comes in. It's not that uh, it's bad. It's actually quite good. Uh, and seeing Sheridan come in and give his epic speech is awesome and uh, everything in that regard. But it is contrived. Um, having Sheridan uh, come with Lorien in his ship, which, you know, we're, we're told about the ship, uh, you know, traveling to Babylon 5, but we're not quite sure where it, who it is and uh, where it's from kind of thing, so we don't know it's Lorien and Sheridan until they get there for the big reveal, and then we have everybody coming to the, uh, to the docking bay, and they use the access codes, but they don't, like, uh, message Babylon 5, so security is rushing there. Meanwhile, the protests are going on against, uh, to Lin's attempt to, uh, organize an attack against Zaha Doom, and, uh, then... You know, Garibaldi's just recovering from, you know, being re recovered from whatever was going on in his plotline, and then going to the head of security force to uh, attack whoever's getting the docking bay, to not showing Lorien and Sheridan stepping off, even though we can see their shadows in the CGI model, and uh, so that we can have the big reveal where Sheridan steps up onto the deal so he can make his announcement, even though we, the audience, know that he's alive anyway, so there was no need for that. Also, it's incredibly convenient that he didn't just message Babylon 5 and go, yo, it's Sheridan, guys, let me in, or I'm going to use my access codes, I'm going to make a big entrance. You know, it, it's very contrived to have all this happening at once, have him never message anybody, and never forewarn anybody. He could have gotten shot. <laughs> could have gotten shot out of the fucking sky. It's just so stupid. Um... It's my big criticism of it. It's not... You can hand wave it away. I'm, you know... It's not that big of a deal. It's just kind of funny in a way of... It's all contrived to have the big entrance. And I like how he uses his status as a... Basically a living legend now. He was the only human to, you know, to ever strike out against the, the Minbari. The Minbari War destroyed the Dark Star. And now... Uh, he is, uh, the only person to ever return from Zahadum alive. Uh, and so he is on the path of using his, at this point, legendary status to get people on his side, which is a smart move. Uh, but like I said, it's, it's a contrived thing, sure, but it was still, you know, fine. Uh, it, it's well written, it's well acted, it's just... Could have found a less contrived way for the big hero speech, my opinion. But anyway. Now, the uh, Lita section, uh, the for the sort of Lita, Vorlon, Ivanova, Marcus stuff, I, I'll tackle as one. So, with Marcus and Ivanova, of course, I love their interactions. I think they're really cute together. Uh, but I like the attempt. It's a cute little comedic moment, but it also makes perfect sense, because... Um, Ivanova is a very hands-on person, so she wouldn't want to translate if she can help it. So she's trying to learn Minbari, but she 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 doesn't 
get it quite right. So she still needs a translator. So her and Marcus have to venture along. And I, and I, it, it's just a cute little, well, sort of comedic moments here and there with that. But also there's just this really, really interesting and very sweet moment where Ivanova and Marcus just sit down and talk. And uh, Marcus asks her, you know, what are you going to do? And when the war's over, what's life going to be like for one Susan Ivanova? And she says, I'd just go back home. You know, I haven't seen the sky in six years. Uh, to see my father's grave. You know, stuff like that. Like, very human, very small-scale stuff. Uh, not only does that humanize the moment because they're going off to find the first ones, these literally nigh-immortal, all-powerful beings to face off against these other nigh-immortal, powerful beings to stop, you know, the death of the galaxy, basically. And it provides more human stakes, but it also adds sort of uh, an inherent sadness, the fact that you can't go home again. And that's so more true for Ivanova than anything else, because... Her home is now taken over by a totalitarian regime. Once the war is over, there's another battle to be fought. The Shadows and now the Vorlons, which I'll get into in a second, you know, are only one out of many threats currently boiling to the surface. Uh, and that it, it there's also an extra pain there of when he asks if there's anyone special. And she's like, no. Not anymore. You know? Uh, her family's gone. Been gone for a while. She has no loved ones. She has no, you know, uh, romantic partners. It's just Susan. That's all she is. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's an inherent sadness in that. And, of course, what Marcus says, well, where where he reveals that he's never been with anyone that he's indeed a virgin and i just love this little uh exchange between him and ivanova because it's an exchange i've had before uh not quite where i was slowly hinting at to the person that i was that that they were the one for me but what i like he was which was absolutely fucking cute but in the fact that i live in a day and age you know, among my generation, I'm in my early 20s, uh, and there's there's an expectation. You're going to be with many people. You're going to be on a thousand dates. You're going to uh, sleep around. You're going to experiment. And then maybe when you reach your late 20s, early 30s, you'll settle down or whatever. Never happened. Never happened with me. Won't ever happen reason being I'm looking for the one just like Marcus is and so there is no need for dating there is no need for sleepy route or anything like that because when I find the one I'll know and uh that is that that is a conversation I've had where people are just flabbergasted and confused because it's it's a viewpoint that many people do not share with my generation and imagine in the future, when we're far more open about our love lives and our sexualities and stuff like that, when prejudices and uh, stereotypes and stuff have gone, you know, gone the way of the dinosaur, 
how that's going to be. Um, people who wait, like me, like Marcus, are rare. Uh, and, you know, whatever. You have whatever pen you, you want of it. But it's just a very sweet scene, and it, it builds character, as well as just being fucking cute, because he is, so, oh yeah, there's this one. She doesn't know it yet, but there's this one, and it's just so adorable. Uh, and I, I just love Marcus and Ivanova together. They're just so cute. But anyway, now, they stumble upon the Vorlon fleet, which I'll get into when... Uh, after I talk about the Lita stuff. So, we finally get a peek into sort of Lita's living situation. Uh, she's, you know, literally she's not entitled to anything except a bed. She is being treated as nothing more than property. And we saw hints of this a couple episodes ago, and I brought attention to this, where Olakesh is just kind of throwing her around, not caring. And there's, there's an... Ab- there is a very explicit allegory of abusive relationships, um, domestic violence, when it comes to the way Lita is being treated by Olkesh, of the verbiage used and the uh, the, the kind of situations that uh, she's put in. Um, I mean, you can't get more explicit than you didn't have to be so rough when you pulled out of me. You know, that kind of thing. It, it's very clearly supposed to be an allegory for domestic violence and abusive relationships. And the thing about Lita is that she is being, she is a special person, quote unquote. Yes, she is a uh, telepath that has special connection to the Vorlons did all this to get in contact with them, became, like, the assistant to their ambassador, got genetically, you know, sort of empowered, sort of, where she's more powerful than any other possible telepath that we've seen so far. She, she's pulled out the most non-stop craziness that we've ever seen from a telepath outside of Ironheart, uh, who was evolving into a different kind of life form. And... She's still a dog on a leash. And that is shown when she strikes back at Olkesh, who deserved to have to be struck back at because she's like, I damn well deserve your respect. And then he goes, Respect? What? And basically and she strikes back at him and before she's even given the chance, smack right right into the door. And then and then we get a cutaway, she screams. Um it is it doesn't matter how special you are, how important you feel. If you're a dog on a leash, you're a dog on a leash. It doesn't change the fact that you are a dog on a leash. You are, you know, you you, you can be given a nice house, a, a, spe- a special bowl, uh, you know, food bowl, special water bowl, be treated really nicely, be treated as one of the family, quote unquote. But it doesn't change your position as you are still ultimately below them. And thus, that is the situation. She is property. She is a dog on a leash. And she attempted to, you know, lash back at her master and her master smacked her back. It's it's a very, very difficult situation. Uh, and then the Vorlons we find out have an entire fleet of ships, thousands of ships, some of them are miles across. 
and uh, they're not messing about anymore. They don't give a damn. They actively go and destroy a planet. They have a planet cracker. They have basically a Death Star, and they just destroyed a planet. Okay, so the reason here, and uh, it's pointed out by Bushard and Franklin, uh, you know, uh, and, and Lita to during the ending of, if this was War of Ideologies, okay, the Shadows believe this, the Vorlons believe this, and for a long while, for a very long time, they respected each other's borders and boundaries and uh, rules of engagement. They had respect for each other. But slowly over time, the respect eroded. And there became a sense of superiority from both of them. And eventually that grew and grew and grew until it became hostile. And the hostile uh, hostilities grew into even bigger proportions. And now... There is the situation where they have now actively destroyed a planet with millions of people on it. All because there was one shadow base there. The Vorlons did this. The Vorlons did that. They actively killed an entire planet full of innocent people because there was one shadow base on it. So, there's a cold calculus to this. The sheer brutality of a victory is a victory you know do the do the ends justify the means and that is what the vorlons are doing they are living in a world where they must strike back they have no alternative at least in their minds because they view their ideology as right wars are hell wars are unimaginable pain anguish hell it's not something we should ever do, but we as humans continue to perpetuate wars throughout history and we never will stop because we're so fucking stupid. But war of ideologies, not just war of nationalism or, you know, uh, wars of revolution and freedom, wars of ideology are sometimes the worst because one side believes they are absolutely right. And they believe that the other side is absolutely evil and wrong. Vice versa, the other side believes they're absolutely right. And the other side is absolutely and horribly evil. Um, if this doesn't sound at all familiar, may I remind you of the common phrase used to justify these kind of wars or these kind of conflicts, even if they don't turn absolutely hostile. If you're not with us, you are against us. Now... Not to get too personal, but I live in America in the year 2020, uh, and I have heard that from both sides of the political spectrum leading up to this election, and it's honestly pretty scary to live in this kind of situation, and I don't want to draw too many allegories, because if we're going to be honest, what's coming later in this season is more allegorical to what's going on currently in America, but... It's honestly scary to hear these words, you know, if you're not with us, you are against us, from both sides of the political spectrum. It, it's not something I feel comfortable with, uh, and that's why War of Ideologies are scary. It's because War of Ideologies treats you to respect your tribe, to respect your ideology, your group, 
and exalt them to a pure and perfect and wonderful, and they're going to save the world and dehumanize the other side of the argument and say they're evil, vile gremlins that must be squashed under our feet. And that kind of thinking leads to some horrible actions. Does it matter where your morality lies? Does it matter where your politics lies? Does it matter? That kind of thinking leads to horrible atrocities. And history has shown this over and over and over again. And it's honestly scary. And so that is the crux of the Shadow and Vorlon issue. Is they just don't give a damn anymore. They have thrown down all pretense of attempting to see the other side. It is now our way or the highway. Get with us or prepare to die. And as I've been saying for a long time, the Vorlons are just as bad as the Shadows. It's always this way when there's two sides to a debate. Remember that saying all the way back in Season 1? Understanding is a three-edged sword. Your side, my side... And the truth? Yeah. That's both applicable to the real world and to right here. And that's going to become important in a few episodes. So now let's talk about the Londo and Shikar bit. Nothing like going from a very dark thing to another incredibly dark thing. So, what I love about the Londo and Shikar bit of this episode is that we are able to show the absolute misery and horror of both physical and mental torture on Jakar and Londo's uh, deteriorating mental state of having to watch it and the absolute bloodlust and sadism of Cartesia without ever actually having to see it, in a way. In the modern world, in a 2020 world, we live in a society in which there are many streaming services that allow you to go full R or NC-17. You can show full-on nudity, sex scenes, swearing, full-on violence, blood, guts, everything. And we've had that with premium cable in the past, decades ago, with HBO, Showtime, etc., etc. And I like a lot of those, uh, uh, you know, a lot of shows on streaming services on, on premium networks. I'm a big fan of Deadwood, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Daredevil and the, these other shows. And um, these these things show the real you know, blood, guts, and kind of thing. It, it can be quite unnerving. And the thing with that is that showing it is one thing. Yes, it's shocking. It's it's horrible to see. Um, it, it's grotesque. But it's never as bad as you can imagine it to be. Reality is always worse than fiction, as they say, and in this case, imagination is even worse than reality. So, yeah. Uh, so, when we first see Jakar in this episode, and he has a gesture's hat that has very clearly been nailed to his head. Yeah, you can imagine the anguish that went through him and the pain he's enduring but we don't have to show it and just everything Cartesia does to him with the, the offering of the water and having not drinking for three days and just 
these little touches of mental torture, of treating him like a toy, like a dog on a leash, to parallel the leader storyline, like property, and all he wants is one little scream. And this is where the true horror of this comes from, is that Chakar is a very proud Narn, very proud man. And the entire point of this is to break him, but he's refusing to be broken. He's been, it, this is normal for him. He's lived through the occupation of Narn. He lived through these kind of tortures. His dad was killed uh, after spilling a drink on his, uh, on the, the lady that owned him, the centauri that owned him, and was beaten and then tied to a tree to starve to death. Like, that, that kind of thing he is used to, physical and mental torture. But the real torture for him is what Londo asks him to do. Are you willing to let your pride get in the way of your future? It's like, if I give in, then I am no Narn at all. Because we do not bow before conquerors to tyrants to oppressors. It's wrong. And Londo says, and the, the, the you're not a Narn currently, you're a prisoner, and soon you'll be dead. And all the other Narn that, that are here, because you refused to give Cartesia what he wanted, are nothing more than slaves. They're not Narns either. That's the point. Is it's, it's demeaning compliance, demeaning practicality, in the face of of hopeful pride are you willing to stick to your guns knowing it will get you killed and your entire people brutally oppressed just for a point or are you willing to sacrifice in order to save the many it's a damn hard choice and it really takes a toll on Drakkar and I love how Jakar does the classic, you don't understand what you're asking me to do. You don't understand. And Londo cuts him off and goes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Reason being, Jakar, he's broken away from the cycles of violence, but he still sees himself and Dinarn as a, as a whole, as an oppressed people that are above the Centauri on some sort of a moral ground. And specifically above Londo. Now, what you agree or not is entirely up to you. But, it's hard to deny that Cartesia is doing just as much harm to the, uh, the, 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 the Centauri people as he is doing to the Darn. It is not as sort of apparent... Um, it, they're not slaves, they're not being demeaned in that way, but their, their entire societal structure and what we'll later learn of his plans just completely, you know, are destroying this entire way of life. And he's living it up as the emperor and, and letting other Centauri just go off and die for no reason. And Londo is having to beg, scrape and scream and cry 
in front of the emperor just to save some people. Just to save his people. Just like Jakar has to beg and scrape and scream and cry just to save some people. His people. That's the point. They are diametrically opposed and yet the same. That's the point of the Londo and Jakar arcs. And I hope I've been very clear in that. And then the whipping scene. The whipping scene is perhaps one of the most grotesque and yet fundamentally amazing scenes in Babylon 5. Once again, we do not show the blood, the gore, the guts, nothing. All we do is we focus on people's faces. The sadism of Cartesia. The dismay of Londo as he begs Jakar to scream. The disgust of Veer as he watches something that nobody should ever have to endure. And the pain of Jakar as he endures 39 consecutive slashes by a whip, an electric whip, that will kill him when it reaches 40. And he has to decide, do I die here or do I endure and I give this asshole what he wants, what he doesn't fucking deserve? Do I swallow my pride in order to help my people or do I die right here, right now? And we see that all play out and it is beautiful. Just absolutely beautiful. There's not a whole lot of scenes like that in a lot of shows. There's some shows get close, but they too often focus on the the the, the, the horrifying aspects of the torture, not the tension, not the psychological effects, not the character beats. Um, there's going to be an entire episode in this season that I'm going to talk about in regards to this and how perfect it's handled, but we'll get there when we get there. So yeah, this is, it's hard to watch and yet it's beautiful at the same time. It is wonderful storytelling, yet it's gross and miserable and they make us sit and watch all 39 lashes. It made me cry the first time I watched. Still makes me a bit teary-eyed even knowing what's coming. So, yeah. And I love how Cartesia is so undeniably evil in what he does that even Veer, the most pure-hearted man you can think of when it comes to Centauri, who last episode and this episode was saying, can we please just negotiate, figure out some way to reason with him, and then when Cartesia comes out and he goes on his infantile rant about how Jakar refuses to scream, give him an inch, and his hands are bloody, and he just doesn't give a shit, and he's like, oh, the the, the new rules of today, we used to call them torturers, now, now they're called pain supervisors, and blah, blah, blah. Once he leaves, Fear's like, no, he's gotta die. He is evil. Evil is often hard to spot until you see it in front of your eyes. And then 
you realize the only way to stop these people sometimes is to get your hands dirty. So, till next time, bye. Thank you.